0: You're listening to the Unsiloed podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc. And I'm here today with Anat Admati, who is a professor of finance at Stanford University Graduate School of Business. And also the co-author of this book, The Banker's New Clothes, which came out, I guess, almost a decade ago in response to the financial crisis, which I think up until the coronavirus crisis was probably the biggest crisis of our lifetime and worthy of a slew of books and and courses. I taught a course on the financial crisis to our financial engineers at Berkeley immediately after the the crisis ended for a couple of years. And now I'm launching a, a course on the coronavirus crisis down at Stanford. This spring. And the thing about this book is that so much of it is still relevant today, right? You offer a critique of the political and economic forces that gave rise to the crisis and offered up some remedies and some policy prescriptions. And I think that in spite of the fact that we've had this, we have Dodd-Frank, we've had a whole slew of, of new regulations, Basel III, they kind of missed the mark. I think a lot of the things that you're pointing out as problems are kind of still there. And even if we're not in that same crisis mode. We're not taking the precautions that we need in order to prevent another crisis of that type going forward. Is that a fair description? More things change, the more they stay the same? Is that the lesson of the crisis?
1: Well, it certainly is true that very little has changed. Much too little has changed. And we just have the system pretty much a variation of itself and kind of operating in a very similar way. The thing is that It's not just about a crisis, because what we saw also in the COVID crisis, what you call is sort of there was no crisis. Some people, there wasn't an implosion of any system. It just was this shock, obviously, and it continues to mutate, (laughs) literally. And some people are affected by it in different ways. And we saw that as well. The market reacts this way. The Federal Reserve does its thing. All these government actors and individuals and companies act. What do you call a crisis? So there's a fascination with the word crisis. You know, panics and runs and crisis. And there's sort of an image of a natural disaster about it. All of a sudden, the sky opens, the ground opens, uh, some disaster. And then you know, calling the ambulance and who did what. We got fires in California. You know, there are disasters that are natural disaster. Of course, there's often a human element to many of those things. Now what about a financial crisis? The situation really is the way I'll summarize it is it's just a bad system. It's bloated beyond any reasonableness. The sector that provides financial services and just way too big for what we really need. With all technologies that can help, it just is big as a part of the economy as a service kind of sector that just moves funds around, if you want to call it that. And it's just extremely inefficient and benefits few people at the expense of all of us paying for it. Now, whether it implodes and needs ambulances and how fast the ambulances that it needs, that's not the question. The question is every day it's a bad system. Every day there's a lot of misconduct, deception and fraud people taking risk and passing it on to others, all of us or some of us, et cetera. So there's just a bad situation in general. And in some respect, it extends to other sectors in the economy in just different ways. Just the whole situation of how corporations interact with the rest of us and corporations interact with governments and with democracy. So it's a much broader issue. The financial system is just an extreme example Of where we kind of haven't figured out how to organize the economy around private sector, how to write rules for private sectors, all of that. So I just saw it really clearly in the financial sector. The problems remain in various forms. They take new forms as technology evolves and other things. But some of the same principles remain in finance for sure and beyond.
0: Yeah. And I think you recently published a piece in Harvard Business Review, a calling for a kind of a new approach in, in business schools, and, and hopefully we'll get to that. But yeah, I think the the financial sector wanted to push this narrative that this was like an exogenous shock, right? That this was like a forest fire or a coronavirus. It was a liquidity crisis that was brought on by, oh, I don't know, irrational skepticism of depositors or you know, holders of, of commercial paper, right, or repos. So just like any other bank panic, all you have to do is kind of calm people down and offer up kind of lender of last resort provisions, and and then things will kind of go back to normal. But I think you're, you're arguing that the spark of the forest fire is kind of less important. What's more important is, do we have all this dry tinder? Do we have a forest that is systematically vulnerable to these crises? And I think that's your main point. But before we do talk about banking specifically, you're known for your work on debt in general, and in particular, you've published on this idea of the leverage ratchet. And this idea is that companies in general have a tendency to use debt and perhaps use debt excessively, and, and they have a difficult time credibly committing to limiting their indebtedness. So I was wondering, you know, what are some of the structural features of our economy that lead companies to take on so much debt?
1: I want to actually start with individuals and households because some of this is also related to even housing policies, and it's the same. Somehow we got ourselves in a sort of debt fueled growth mode in the entire economy. And one of the most amazingly ridiculous and really bad policies that just seems to stick around is that even when the government decides or we decide to subsidize something or encourage something, it's often in ways of debt subsidies. And this you can see, especially in housing and in corporate debt, because we give a tax deduction to interest expense, but only on specific things. It used to be even more, but the entire idea that you need to always borrow in order to fund things, obviously you wanna fund good investments. And there's funding with debt and there's funding with equity. I mean, around here in Silicon Valley, a lot of the funding is with equity, So the question is, why is it, for example, say you want to encourage home ownership. Why are we subsidizing mortgages to buy homes? And then the Fed buys all these mortgages and pumps up housing prices. So now we can't, nobody can afford to live in our Bay Area, et cetera. In other words, housing is, it's a piece of construction. It's not a productive investment, but it's a source of wealth for a lot of people. And the question is, why are we pumping up real estate prices so much and why are we supporting Debt to buy houses, which is also regressive as a subsidy. It's just distortive. Not a lot of countries do that, by the way. On the housing, many countries do not give a tax subsidy to mortgages. You can subsidize first time owners. I mean, this subsidy goes to the rich much more. All housing subsidies in this country go more to the rich than to the poor because you get a subsidy to buy a house, but only if you borrow. So even if you can afford to buy the house outright, you want to borrow to pay less taxes. Why? There's no reason for that. If you wanted to subsidize housing, there are many ways to subsidize housing. You could subsidize somebody's equity in a house, the down payment, and then they'll be less vulnerable to foreclosures and all the stuff that happened. You will have less subprime lending. So in general, we just rely too much on debt. And the debt often becomes predatory in bad terms, payday loans and other things, and even student loans. In other words, what is it you want to fund and how is it you want to do it? We do way too much funding by debt in general.
0: Some people would argue, oh, well, home ownership creates all of these externalities, community stability and, and so forth. That's right. But you're saying even if that's true, that we don't need to do it through the debt channel. But is the debt channel just easier to implement?
1: No, I mean, it may be. But I can give Stanford undergrads in a course, and I have a question, you know, after one course of without any fancy finance, to just say, okay, here's a menu of how to subsidize homeownership, if that's what you want. And the winner is, of course, the way that I think Australia has done it at some point, which is to choose a population of people like first-time owners, because we're not into flipping and upping and upping necessarily, first-time owners in particular, and give them a tax break for the down payment or a cash out just for down payment. That is an investment in the house that comes in the form of equity, which is the best type of investment, because then it's less vulnerable to price declines and to sort of being underwater or even other shocks to income that can come. So in other words, there are policy objectives and there's the best and the better or worse ways to get it. So that's housing. Now you go to corporate, there is no economic reason that I'm familiar with that makes any sense to allow tax deductibility of interest. We teach corporate finance and we calculate that tax benefit and we basically say to companies, oh, don't leave money on the table. You obviously want to save on taxes. Well, why are we favoring debt funding over equity funding for corporations? See, individuals may not have as much access to other forms of funding. You can't, you know, there are income-based student loans. There are other things about funding education as well with debt to students. That has now created a huge crisis of student loans and terrible, very harsh collection policies that leave a lot of people in huge debt overhangs that affect their lives. Again, if you want to support education, there are other ways to do that. For corporations, there's absolutely no reason that corporations will become addicted to debt. Corporations are addicted to debt, especially the point being, this ratchet being, once you have debt, your decisions start favoring more debt over equity to the extent that your current creditors allow you to continue to borrow. Of course, your new creditors will want to, you know, everybody wants to come ahead of the previous creditors. And, you know, when you get into a bankruptcy process, then, of course, it's all about prioritization, but any kind of new creditors at that point become even even stronger. And you see this in all kinds of interesting bankruptcy. But at that point, corporations have limited liability and they walk away. So when they take the payouts out, dividends and other things, that depletes the equity. They could invest that. But that's what people talk about, buybacks and, and what's wrong with them. But dividends are the same in some respect. It's money out of the corporation, which, of course, we want them to pay if they don't have any good investments. But, you know, Warren Buffett doesn't like to pay it. He likes Wells Fargo to pay him because he doesn't probably trust them or what they do with the money. But the question is, does a corporation have things to invest in? If not, it should return the money. But it shouldn't just do it for tax purposes because somebody's got to pay taxes. Now, we could debate the issue of corporate taxation, but and, of course, that's a whole issue on itself. But why is the way you fund your corporation mattering, especially when we have developed equity markets, for corporations and that's the whole point that the corporation can fund itself with equity it can grow and thrive from its retained earnings look at all the companies here that are so cash rich in silicon valley and they don't need to borrow so companies just don't need to borrow as much and when you get to banking it's extreme because banks start life with a lot of debt like they owe their depositors now the depositors are insured so they don't really think of themselves as creditors but that's where the conflict is kind of the original sin in banking the conflict that immediately exists between the shareholders or managers of the bank and their depositors or those who back their depositors like the FDIC, by the time they get so massive and so complex and so connected and so opaque, in my view, the banks, the large banks anywhere, are practically uninsurable to FDIC. Now FDIC is taking the chance on it because we're not going to run and get our money because we believe it's there, but it's a kind of house of card. In some respect, we, As an insurer of deposits and as implicit insurers of all these risky investments, it's kind of a crazy system. In banking,
0: I think there's a fairly simple explanation for why equity holders want to have a heck of a lot of debt. But in the corporate setting, though, what's the political economy story there? Because there, there's no third parties that are picking up the tab, right? The risks and the rewards are distributed across all the claim holders.
1: No, no. Here's the point. First of all, too big to fail has become the entire corporate sector because of in the COVID, I mean, if you just look at the airlines, that was an incredibly expensive bailout and the airlines paid all their earnings in dividends before the COVID and you can't get it back from them. But who got it? Shareholders and executives. And then we need a bailout. So in other words, if you do anything but pay it out to shareholders and reduce your debt, then you'll have more ability to absorb all kinds of shocks. But shareholders always prefer to shift the downside to others. It could be the previous creditors. Now, in this case, when the Federal Reserve comes and buys corporate bonds, it enables the corporations, all kinds of corporations, to borrow ever more because the creditors know they'll be paid. So we have an economy that's just basically working for the investor class, bonds and stocks. And the economics and the political economy of it, first of all, there's the tax subsidy. Now, in our paper, The Leverage budget that you mentioned, which is a technical paper uh, where I learned more about the dynamics of leverage, of indebtedness, of funding with debt and equity, it basically is a force that says no matter how indebted you are as a corporation, your incentives, if I give you one more chance to fund or to swap debt for equity, you'd always prefer more debt. Even... If it was the case that in bankruptcy that would follow more likely, all the assets would get destroyed from the shareholders. They don't care what happens in bankruptcy. So they just take the upside. So it's a gambling for resurrection on both sides of the balance sheet, which is either you take the assets to Las Vegas because you get the upside and on the downside, you're not there anyway, or you keep borrowing and then you might live. As a zombie for a while, and eventually something good might happen, and you get resurrected as a shareholder.
0: So, then is a tax preference or tax subsidy to debt kind of a compensation to the debt holders for the expropriation that they can expect from equity holders and this inability for them to credibly commit? Because we could easily just abolish tax deductibility of debt and level the playing field, or just eliminate the corporate tax altogether, and that, that would level the playing field somewhat. But we don't seem to see much political demand on the corporate side for either one of those?
1: I'll explain. So first of all, creditors in general can have contracts and covenants. So the the answer to these kinds of questions generally would be in the terms of the loan. If you know that they will do something to harm you later, you'll either increase the cost of the loan or you'll write in the contract that they have to maintain certain ratios or, or something like that. The problem is enforcement, it's very costly creditors have to coordinate, creditors have to know that violations occurred of some covenant or other. And so we now have sort of covenant-like debt and all kinds of other debt that's miraculous. Now, they might charge high interest for it, saying, well, I'm I'm an investor manager somewhere, you know, they're institutional investors themselves and they like the high interest because, again, the bad stuff will happen later, maybe after they're gone. So there is sort of that short-termism that happens both for shareholders and for creditors. So you have a problem of just the contracts are really imperfect. Now, in terms of political economy, which you were just talking about, even though Academics have said for years that there is no justification. I mean, that tax preference for debt goes back to the beginning of corporate taxation, where the railroads were very, very heavily indebted and basically would have all gone under. And so they gave them a deductibility to just kind of help them float. It was a kind of a subsidy, but it just stuck. And here's sort of the political economy. If you want to change something, somebody might lose or the transition is hard because you already, you know, contracts were made on certain assumptions or whatever. So there's always people who are going to claim you're taking something from them. And what I've discovered in being in the political advocacy space for over a decade now is the status quo just has a lot of staying power. That It's very, very hard to change. And it's true for our regulatory patchwork of, you know, there's a crisis and then something gets added, but very frequently nothing gets removed. Like we have a lot of agencies, so like we get Enron and we build Sarbanes-Oxley, we build an an auditor regulator. And so in financial regulations, there are like five or six or seven different regulators. And and you see it now in crypto that they don't quite know who does what between all these alphabet soup of agencies, the Fed and the SEC and the CFTC and the OCC and CFTC, all of those. And so they eliminated one regulatory agency that was really bad. They should have already eliminated at least another one, this Office of Thrift Provision, which was actually like the worst of all. They get captured, what they call, meaning it's all about their tariff and the fees or whatever it is, however they live as, as an agency, as a regulatory agency. And they just forget what they're there for completely. They just get into the mindset of servicing the industry that they're supposed to regulate. And it's away from the public eye. So again, in the political economy, one of the things I certainly noticed, and you can see it in every space of government, corporations, society connection, is that there are often technical issues that the public doesn't understand. And it gives a lot of space for conflicted expertise or even suddenly captured expertise to enter. And this is true, especially in banking, because it's very, it appears very technical to people. There's a lot of jargon that people don't understand. And you have all the big shot people saying things and you don't really understand what they're saying. That's why our book is called The Banker's New Clothes, because it's really based on this notion that if you don't understand these words, then something's wrong with you where it's not really rocket science, but it just sort of seems too difficult for people. And then you don't get the public really knowing what to push for. They can get angry, but then their anger might be not focused properly. And then they can tell them, then it gives all these narratives to the regulators. Look at what we've done and look at this thousand pages of regulation and regulation is bad. And all these narratives about regulation harms this or harms that, don't you like it, or regulation will disfavor us against other countries, or all these different things that we try, some of which we try to unpack. You know, after the book came out, they just keep saying the same things. So we have a document that we kept updating until summer 2019, which is called the Parade of Bankers New Clothes Continue, which is basically the emperor keeps marching down the street. In the latest count, there are 34 flawed claims. 34 distinct float, but if they say them and get away with it, then we can't really change it. So it's really been an eye-opener for me to see how difficult it is to say something not that complicated, something pretty basic, once you explain it. It does take a few more sentences to explain. And how difficult it is to get through any actual change in this world, despite after a huge financial crisis that should have usually would wake people up. Because all the other narratives, they just somehow manage to win.
0: Right. And the book actually, I mean, the book goes back to basics and I think it was kind of undersold because it really is almost like a textbook.
1: I use it as a textbook.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a textbook that kind of walks through the basics of leverage and, and the basics of banking. and
1: Corporate finance meets banking Yeah, without the match. The footnotes take you to all kinds of sources if you know more, but the must-read is no acronyms, no complications. We had people completely non-technical read it, and if they had a question, we explained it again. So you're going to learn a lot of finance, a lot of corporate finance, a lot of banking, and what's going on that, again, is still
0: relevant with variations. may use it for my money and banking course this spring at Stanford.
1: I can send you my syllabus that I'm working on right now for a course called, we used to be called Finance and Society, now it's called Finance, Corporations, and Society, because through financialized metrics, it affects all corporations. What happens with Facebook or with ransomware or with whatever else or product safety is all about maximizing profits and stock price and, and all of that. And you can see some of the same elements elsewhere in sort of the corporate governance space that when you do everything so nominally, or at least with a narrative of doing it for your shareholders, you might
0: cause a lot of harm. Well, and it's called the bankers' new clothes because you're right. The people go around saying things that make no sense and I get this, right? I understand why the public is going to be taken in by some of this. But what I find puzzling is why it seems like bankers themselves seem to believe a lot of the things that they say. In corporate finance, we we learn about things like Badigliani and Miller, and and we learn about how return on equity is not the metric you should be pursuing it. And then bankers, they seem to act as if they've never been exposed to any of this stuff. And the regulators, and even academics of banking, they don't seem to have like corporate finance 101. So how is that possible?
1: It's shocking. I mean, it really is shocking. It's really when I started looking into banking as a corporate finance and corporate governance expert right after the financial crisis, I was shocked. I mean, you really actually have academics writing textbooks and it's as if. Like the civilization of corporate finance and what we understand about the basics of corporate finance just hasn't made it there. They just have like a whole other set of words that they use, and they just seem to refuse to accept. It's really in the sort of domain of willful blindness of just basically the Upton Sinclair saying you can't teach a man something if his salary depends on not understanding it. It's like they don't want to understand it. I've met people inside banking a lot, and a lot of people have told me, oh, they don't get it. I said, this is bread and butter finance. What do you mean these people are in the center of the system? What do you mean they don't get it? I mean, this is so basic. But they talk about things because they look at them from the banker's perspective. So when you're already in this extreme position where almost all your funding comes from debt, you just want to take the money out all the time, You just safety becomes kind of your enemy. But you can get away with it because you're always on the upside. Or if you're not on the upside and you're just insolvent, nobody knows it. So you can sort of, you know, in the savings and loan crisis, which was very similar, just a lot of small banks, basically a train wreck waiting to happen with interest rates being very high on the funding side and very low on the mortgages side in the 80s. And they just cheated on their accountings and took the money out, literally looting these small banks.
0: The regulators explicitly gave them forbearance, right, and said, you know, here, go to the casinos and gamble so that we don't have to deal with this. Let's kick a can down the road.
1: Exactly, as you said. So in banking, you can be a zombie forever. To my mind, if you stop the world and you just unwound all the trillions of dollars of derivatives and commitments and all of that, the different parts of these complicated institutions that couldn't possibly exist in markets, Could not. You would find out they're zombies. I mean, they're insolvent, meaning you can't today satisfy all their creditors and have anything left. They're underwater, basically, like a homeowner cannot sell the house to pay the mortgage. But we never know it because they just roll it day to day to day. And the Federal Reserve, the people who can support them and who are themselves regulators are able to hide the weaknesses of the banks and their own failures as regulators. And so they do it because they can, because it works for them. So you just have this, this house of cards that just keeps going. And it's really it's shocking. Now, the academics that can go on and on, I mean, their job is to reverse engineer stories and explore the system as it is and accept it as it is. And that's what they do.
0: Luigi Zingales makes this claim, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, so he and I believe the very same thing. And we're very close friends. We are sort of finance veterans in some respects or recovered finance professors. I mean, I no longer share interest with a lot of people in finance because I have much more interest in basically the broader issues of political economy and governance much more broadly defined across the whole world. The most recent essay I wrote is called Capitalism, Laws, and the Need for Trustworthy Institution because the real issue often is deception more broadly. And we live in a world in which You know, it's a post-fact world and people say stuff. So all the stuff they say in banking is fancy. We have a lot of deceptions going on. George Akerlof and Schiller wrote this book, Fishing for Fools. And it's just about how deception is a winning strategy, both in markets and in politics. So it really ends up being that in the social sciences and even in the hard sciences, we just refuse to accept science. you could say, you know, it's like climate change or whatever. And people were deceiving on climate change as well. We have a book and a movie called Merchants of Doubt. And the lobbyist says, my job is to confuse. My job is to delay. That's called the tobacco strategy, which is to always deny. And it's a winning strategy in courts, DuPont and dark water and pollution and forever chemicals, all the tricks that they use. So everywhere you look, you find the same themes,
0: Purdue Pharma, do I need to say any
1: more?
0: Well, let's dive into some of these arguments. So I think your big policy recommendation, simple policy recommendation is that banks need to be less levered, right? I mean, it's that simple. You need more equity. You need a bigger equity cushion so that there's less moral hazard here.
1: There's more ability to absorb loss without bailouts.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so the industry sort of seems to fight this tooth and nail and they offer up a whole bunch of arguments. They say that, well, first of all, if we set aside all this capital, we can't lend it out.
1: Not set aside. I know, right? So, (laughs) Which side of the balance sheet we're talking about? They say set aside, and it looks like it's a pile of cash. No, it's your equity funding that you invest. If you have a down payment on a house, that's not money sitting aside. It's invested in the house. So... The way to see what equity is, is just to talk about retained earnings. You know, when Warren Buffett makes money, invest it in something, and then it might raise more equity and all of that. When a company has profits, if it has profitable investment, it can make them, and the money still belongs to shareholders. It's not disappearing. They can sell shares to create a dividend, what's called homemade dividend. If the company is investing on their behalf, they're happy. The stock price goes up then you can sell it for more. So the shareholders are happy if the company has good investment. If it pays them back because it shields the money from creditors, that's really sort of what's going on here. But when they say hold capital, so they don't use even the word equity that suggests funding, but just a passive asset sort of a reserve requirement that they would have cash in the ATM. I mean, that just completely moves the whole discussion to another part of the balance sheet, which is sort of their investments. Well, we're not saying to keep money idle. We're we're saying, fine, put money at risk. but just put your own money at risk. Why depositors'
0: money? Why creditors' money? So when you hear that, do you think that Jamie Dimon just doesn't understand banking? or?
1: (laughs) Oh, no, I don't think that.
0: I mean, doesn't understand what a balance sheet is? He does. He would tell you I mean, even talked with him
1: that they're safe enough, that they can live like that. No other corporation lives with single digit at best, depending on your measurements. And I don't even believe the measurement because they do so much netting of balance sheet things that would have made their balance sheets trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars of assets and liabilities that they're that safe enough. Look at him. He's not defaulting. Great. He's not defaulting because everybody thinks that he won't be allowed to default. Default, I'm saying. I'm not talking about his financial health, but he can bring numbers that they count as supposedly reassuring. I just don't believe these numbers mean very much, and I don't see them not defaulting as evidence of strength. So they'll flaunt numbers that are meaningless. Some of the same numbers that they flaunt as telling me how well capitalized they are some of these numbers were flat through the financial crisis as they were imploding. I mean, Citigroup had regulatory numbers that were flat, even as the stock price was going down to zero and it kept getting bailouts all the time. So Citigroup and Bank of America in the financial crisis completely collapsed. JPMorgan Chase was among the better ones. But JPMorgan Chase got also a huge gift in the buying of, of Bear Stearns and All kinds of things. He'll tell you it did us such a favor. But his view is that if you have a debt that in principle might absorb losses, except it never does, that's good. They will tell you that these TLACs and other magical securities that are anything but equity, but it still promises high return. And on paper, it could absorb losses. But we saw that none of it did and none of it does today because nobody ever presses those buttons to even try then they can just keep going saying these things. Then he might say, oh, but the other countries in Europe are not regulating or any of these other arguments. In other words, let me endanger this system or let me just be profitable on the backs of the fact that the losses or the downside risk lies someplace else because other governments are supporting their banks. So that's the argument for your national champions or your global competitiveness. But we also take up one of our chapters that's companies use in politics, you know, subsidize me so I can win against some other companies. I mean, that's what the Chinese might be doing, as well as we. So now you get into the global politics, and that's another rich area in which, again, governments have become, democratic governments have become weak relative to global corporations in general. And so it's a much broader, deeper problem that we have in today's world. We created corporations in order to be able to scale and mobilize resources and sign long-term contracts and all of that. The corporate form has done a lot for us, but the notion of corporations in this set of rules that all individuals have to adhere to, that we have created, the fact that they have ultimately in many ways, and depending on the sector, such inadequate rules about when they can cause harm with their decisions as they're made in the corporations have basically led to a situation in which democracies are undermined by this power imbalance. That in the democracy, corporations have a lot of voice, even though they don't vote. And the people who control corporations and benefit most from them are able to impact the entire economy in ways that create all of these distortions that we have extreme levels of inequality and other issues, and then they cross borders and are taking advantage of jurisdictional differences, both within the United States, across states, and across borders, except for China. So China is the one that figured this out and is where the government is strong. The rest of the world, to varying degrees, governments are weak, and this is especially true in the U.S.
0: Well, I want to dig into another argument that bankers will make, which is, well, equity is, is more expensive. Now, look, I think sometimes their reasoning seems to violate, you know, Midigliani and Miller and, and doesn't make any sense. But to some extent, it's true, right? Because the debt is, is subsidized. So it is cheaper to do debt.
1: Privately. Okay. But the question is, suppose there was no law against stealing, or suppose there was no law against driving under the influence or driving recklessly. I could say it's expensive for me not to be able to steal from you. It's expensive. If I stole from you, it would be good for me, for me. But we have laws against that. This situation in which the banks benefit at the expense of somebody else is not a productive thing. It's just a transfer of where, as they say, Profits are subsidized and losses are socialized in principle or just shifted to others. So costs and risks are just shifted when they say expensive. So in any situation, I can say this is privately expensive to me. Now, when you talk about regulations and rules, think of police departments and other laws. Think more broadly. Okay, I want to enforce traffic laws. I need policemen in the street. Okay, if there was no law restricting my driving, I might drive faster, and then I might endanger somebody else. So we as a society decided that, that it's worth having policemen with radars to stop me if I drive under the influence of red drive recklessly, and we accept that. Well, the banks and many corporations are not accepting speed limit types of things. Because they say it's expensive for them. So I'll give you another example. I have posted, and I recommend to you, talking to Nicole Perlroth, who wrote this book, This Is How They Tell Me, The World Ends. And this is on cybersecurity, a technical topic. She infiltrated that space of hacking. And when she discusses the situation with cybersecurity right now, you see the issues. Okay. This is now an issue of almost national security. And the private sector has become sort of both a victim and sometimes a perpetrator of hacking. You got the Israeli company hacking iPhones of journalists, and you got all these hospitals and cities and colonial pipeline being hacked by people outside the country or whatever. It's almost a declaration of war. Now you want the police to come help you. However, in 2012, there were proposals to insist on companies having more cyber hygiene. We're talking two-step authentication. We're talking about making sure systems don't leave open doors, literally like you leave open doors to a thief. In the United States of America, 85% of infrastructure is in the private sector. While Colonial Pipeline was hacked, not in the pipes, in the billing, and it was going to disrupt the entire East Coast. Well, now they have to pay the ransomware and the government might help them recover it. But in 2012, When simple rules were proposed by the Obama White House, I don't remember, Congress, the Chamber of Commerce, the lobbying organization of corporations, was fighting it, saying precisely what they say about equity. It would be costly to American business. That they were saying at the same time they themselves in their own offices were being hacked. So they resisted. Now Biden has an approach of, costs, of of carrots and sticks about basic cyber security.
0: Well, see, now this is puzzling. I want to get to corporate governance because it seems to be that if the speed limit is 70, everyone drives 70. And if the speed limit is 90, they're going to drive 90. And if there's no speed limit, they're just going to drive infinitely fast. But at some level, you're not socializing all the risk. At some point, you're going to crash and, and burn. And so why is it that shareholders do such a poor job of monitoring the behavior of the managers? Because Look, the shareholders of Lehman Brothers, they were wiped out. I mean, I bought Lehman Brothers shares the day before they went bankrupt because I thought Ben Bernanke would never, ever, ever let this happen. He must know what's going to happen. He's never going to let happen. I was wrong. I misread his work, or at least I underestimated the influence of others. And so why are these shareholders, why are they outsourcing supervision? Why aren't they doing this supervision? Because at some point, they're going to get wiped out if they let the managers go too crazy, right?
1: No, not necessarily. So our paper says that in the context of the stock price of a bank, minimizing equity is, works for the shareholders. Okay. That's true even without bailouts because of the tax benefits and all that when you're so highly indebted already. So this is nominally on behalf of shareholders, but not on behalf of the general investor public. So I wrote about that as well. If your entire holdings were in one bank and your entire preferences independent of whatever else happens, we're on the stock price of that price, of they are doing your bidding. Now, more generally, shareholders these days are holding their shares through a lot of institutions. So there's layers and layers of agency issues. So now you're giving your money to some BlackRock or whatever, now you want BlackRock to money. So the issue is just how do shareholders actually govern? The shareholders only own shares. All they really do is vote for board. Now look right here. Okay, Wells Fargo cheated on their customers. On whose behalf did they do it? Wells Fargo, if they got away with opening millions of accounts, they didn't get away with it. In the end, they paid a lot of fine. The point is, however, so the shareholders didn't end up benefiting from that. So oftentimes it's in the name of shareholder value that all kinds of things get done, which if you can get away with, could work in that narrow sense. The problem is what you're touching on a little bit is just basic enforcement as a governance problem, a compliance with any rules, because do the people at the top have, so now you get into this issue of executives going to jail and all of that. So ultimately, especially for things that most of the time, the top executives and board is completely shielded from harm. Even the Sacklers got away with everything and took money out of Purdue, and they did this in bankruptcy court for Purdue and they themselves didn't file for bankruptcy. So the, the downside for executives, if they have deniability, is minimal. And even in, in Lehman Brothers, you lost your money, but in you know, Feldmay may have lost some money, but did okay. Oh, the stump did okay in Wells Fargo. This, okay. Then now they take up ads to say that they're good and trust them again for the customers. But ultimately, shareholders are more protected than
0: other stakeholders in this economy. So you're saying then that the financialized corporate governance, which you have written about, which we've been teaching since the shareholder primacy revolution in the seventies and eighties, that it actually works pretty well, that there is a pretty solid alignment of interest between managers and shareholders. So the problem's not the agency relationship there, but rather they're doing too good of a job of getting the, the managers to do the best interest of the shareholders.
1: Okay. So first of all, I want to point one thing, when you say the shareholders A shareholder doesn't wear that hat only. A shareholder is a person, okay? The person is the person also drinking the polluted water or losing their job. So as people, and that's also what Luigi wrote and I wrote about as well, the shareholders is complete people who have interactions with corporations and many other corporations, some of which they have shares in and some of which they don't. As people, it's not clear they benefit from this. And that's certainly true for the bank shareholders who were also the taxpayers that bailed out all these companies. So it's not even clear when you say shareholder primacy. Now, in the context of the stock prices, you may be right, but the overall system is such that we're suffering and ultimately paying more in all the distortions in the economy. In other words, the majority of us, at least. Some people do benefit. But my point on financial corporate governance is that it doesn't work well for society as a whole. Shareholders as a group of people is basically tend to be certain parts of the population, not all. So in terms of democratic decision-making or in terms of any measure, even of economic efficiency, you can't say that financial corporate governance in the absence of effective government works. That's the problem. Financial scope of governance could work fine, and I'm not a stakeholder governance kind of person to say, let's let the CEO solve our problems. I want the government to work better. That's my thing. It's very difficult. So it's really the, the plight is the plight for effective government, not too much regulation. I hate some of the financial regulations because they're too complicated, but that's what helps them hide how bad they are. And they create a lot of jobs for a lot of people to comply
0: and enforce. Well, I mean, we've seen, I think, among, especially our business school students, they seem to, on the surface, be interested in society more maybe than they were 30 years ago. When I was in business school, it was just like, go to Wall Street, get rich, whatever. And our students seem to be interested in bigger issues, but they seem to emphasize private solutions instead of public solutions. And they seem to want the companies to do things. But even more, it's almost like individual by having a zero waste building and working on your pronouns and not using plastic straws, like that's going to stop global warming. And it seems like, have people just given up on the public sector? Have they just sort of just said, that's just hopeless and and we we just need to do everything ourselves and keep our hands clean?
1: So that's what I've been on a campaign on. After realizing that, I reign active in it, but it's not a full-time as much as it was in 2010 to 16, which I focused on that battle, policy battle that is in the book and beyond. I moved a lot of my battles into business education and sort of how viewing us ourselves as business schools, as academics, as part of the problem and trying to make us a little bit more part of the solution, starting with the fact that we recognize that the private sector is not going to solve our problems, that the private sector has undermined and overwhelmed the government sector by also not realizing how much it needs it to work. And we saw all these things in COVID. If you read Michael Lewis, fifth risk and all this stuff, we need public sector. But in business schools, we just focus entirely on the private sector under implicit assumptions that are just wrong. And that's really the bubble that I was in until I came into this realization after the financial crisis. I lived in a bubble. I made assumptions that were wrong. And that continues to be the case. So change is difficult also in academia and business schools especially. In the 80s, there started being this mantra with Ronald Reagan, the government is always a problem. The government is corrupt and incompetent, etc. And therefore, you have all these heroic CEO surge that they will take care of us because the government can't. To which my response is, if the government can't, why is that? And did you have anything to do with it, with your own actions to corrupt the government, basically, to weaken the government, to rob it of resources in every clever way you can. And now we're all paying the price. So I'm just off teaching a course, a brand new course, and I believe you interviewed my co-teacher, Rob Siegel, Called business and government power and interaction twenty first century world, where we started, which was meant to bring our men MBA students into a recognition that we must worry about the competence, expertise, resources, and incentives of the people in the government, the governance problem of the government institutions that are paralleling what we need to have in the private sector as well. So governance problems pervade. All institutions. And that was the big theme. And so you start with a case like Nestle, okay, slavery, human rights. Will corporations worry about human rights or not? China, Uyghurs, et cetera, et cetera. Or who will? Across the borders, we have a UN resolution, it's soft law, that's international law. But you get all the way to safety in every category. We didn't do finance. I'm doing that in a separate course. But there's been a theme where I try to bring to my classes policymakers from the SEC, whistleblowers, short sellers, people looking for what's wrong and always finding a lot, where a switch gets turned in the mind of some students at least that, yeah, we need a system that works and it's my problem to make it work too. So a question, what will you do to prevent government corruption? And in government corruption, I don't mean just in some African countries, I mean right here, because corruption is abuse of entrusted power. And we have a lot of that right here by even just enabling corruption elsewhere, money laundering, all of that. So all the forms of corruptive dependency, money in politics, we brought a congressman and it's like, do you take money from PACs or corporations? Well, Ro Khanna doesn't need to because he lives in a rich district where he can get individual contributions, but we have a messed up campaign contribution system. Et cetera, we have too much corporate opacity in this country, you know, as of now, they have big effort on corruption, finally, which they agreed on years ago to not be such a haven for all kinds of dirty money in this country. so we have enough problems everywhere, and we should just own them and try to take care of them. so I'm basically for more civic action. you know, think of the media and how we need the media to do investigations and What's Facebook doing with a whole class on Facebook? And why are they immune governance? Zuckerberg.
0: It seems like a big challenge, right? So if we think about the regulatory capture in banking, just for example, now, on the one hand, you'd be very unrealistic to expect any single bank to unilaterally decap itself by, say, lowering its leverage.
1: It's collective action problem. It's only the government can do it.
0: Right, exactly. So they collectively would need to, almost lobby the government to regulate them, to create it.
1: No, you have Facebook lobbying for regulation now, but which regulation? Okay, they all say, oh, we got plenty of regulation. So there have been efforts to say to them, fine, you know, there are some regulations that are really stupid. Let's make a bargain. Okay, you give me more equity and I'll leave you off some of the regulation because I don't trust they're any good. So there's a lot of regulations I'll give up. I'm not a regulation hawk, actually. I just want this one effective thing, I'm not into micromanaging what they invest in. I want them to be able to take risks, just I don't want the risk to endanger other people who are not getting the upside as much as a few people. In any case, that's the point. The point is self-regulation doesn't work in many sectors. It doesn't because there's no incentive for it because other people, I mean, why, why are the chocolate manufacturers, why did they promise back 20 years ago that they will end child slavery in Africa and they didn't deliver that? Because they're losing competition if they don't use slavery. It's cheaper. So the competitive pressure is, so I'm an economist. I understand how this works. So the point is you can't unilaterally change it, just what you said. The only way, if you remove speed limits, okay, you know, we all control ourselves. Maybe yes, maybe no, but we decided to put speed limits in. Maybe people think it's not a good thing,
0: but I like it. I feel safer on the street. But the logic of collective action means that these very concentrated interests with very powerful lobbying organizations, they're socializing the, the downside, but can we realistically expect the dispersed individuals who are negatively affected to step in, or, or can we rally, say, other industries to say, hey, look, anything that benefits banking is gonna hurt manufacturing and, and is gonna hurt services. I used to think that. Is that a realistic way to assemble a coalition?
1: I used to think that, but I realized in the politics of banking, everybody needs banks. Banks are very powerful because nobody wants to annoy them. So the Chamber of Commerce, you'd think, is, is like all industries, but they're dominated by banks. So banks are very powerful, more generally, in the private sector. The financial system, it has a lot of power because they're about money and everybody needs money. So tech, same issues. Tech has no regulation, pretty much. They're immune from any liability on all kinds of things. Now everybody's realizing it. That's a sector that, unlike banking, that's always been political and connected to government because it's central bank money and all this stuff, is different. The tech sector was born free and global. And now all the governments are realizing, oh my God, what are we going to do? So some in Europe are waking up. Some in various other countries are waking up to what they might do about Policing speech online, if anything, or how to prevent harm harm from speech, from bullying, from all kinds of ways in which you can put in stuff that other people want you to take down and you can't, all of that. Anyway, my answer is that I think we need to worry about educating younger people in general. Fortunately, I'm able to teach undergraduates here, and it's called Finance Corporations and Society. Starting COVID last year, they're going to do projects as opposed to midterm and final. And they'll do midterm for all the financial literacy that I'm teaching them just to know how to read contracts and how to protect themselves as they invest and borrow and, and interact with the financial sector and with the corporate sector more generally. And just showing them how the system works, the politics, and it just makes them more active. You have Aaron Brockovich writing a book called Superman's Not Coming. So it's more of a just civil action. and. Your hope is that democracy works. We have other issues about our democracy, you know, about voting and the electoral college and all that's U.S. specific. But the will of the people can somehow, the people know what they want. (laughs) For one thing, that they are not confused themselves by all the narratives and that they're able to get the government to do what they want. You know, you'd have a whistleblower from Facebook and now they're thinking about more stuff for that.
0: I don't know if they'll agree. I don't think we can expect the ordinary person on the street to understand capital ratios and so forth. But I think certainly among the the educated, among the elite, let's say there's room for more education, journalism, but what about just academia? Do we bear some responsibility for providing cover and providing legitimacy, or is that irrelevant? Does it matter? These companies don't need academics to provide window dressing, do they?
1: Oh, they do need academics all the time. I mean, okay, if when I transitioned into the discussion, finally daring to say the word corruption inside a business school, I started with discussing the, you know, incestuous relations between nonprofits and for-profits, okay, meaning Purdue Pharma supporting American Medical Association. American Medical Association, therefore, staying quiet about the addictiveness of OxyContin where Coca-Cola and Pepsi is sponsoring a lot of healthcare organizations so that they remain silent on soda tax and other things that are like that. So money speaks everywhere, including nonprofits. And universities are not immune from that, actually. Their donors, especially of business schools, are from the private sectors, and you don't want to annoy them. That's why the only way you're going to talk about society is to make everybody feel good about themselves and do impact investing in philanthropy and all of that. So that's sort of the winner-takes-all charade of changing the world, sort of part of it. So academics are not immune. So Luigi Zingales and I have been talking about academic capture, and the sugar sector paid nutritionists at Harvard to produce research that academics testify in all kinds of antitrust, litigation, you basically power structures enter academics, access to data or board positions or other things can corrupt academics just the same. So we can't say that capture only happens elsewhere either. I have seen academics that would not speak up when they know stuff is wrong because they hate conflict. It's willful blindness. They hate conflict. They want to stay nice to people. They wouldn't speak up. I've seen more challenging situations when academics would, for example, collaborate with captured regulatory institutions as well as with the private sector for data or other types of perks or consulting. But when it comes to regulatory bodies, if they have a narrative that they promote, the academics who want to be friends with them would help them. And if you challenge them, you won't get in the room potentially. And that's true everywhere. So it's a form of whistleblowing. So I wrote a manifesto sort of for academics called Political Economy Blind Spot" and a Challenge for Academics, which said it is our duty because we're experts and because we are protected by tenure and when we get tenure and the ability to speak up. It is our duty to help, to view ourselves a little bit more as the type of journalism that holds power to account. We have maybe fancier techniques and we can help the journalism because we can't just say somebody else will do it. So I just have a very strong civic sense and sense of responsibility for everybody, what they can do. And I know that not everybody can do everything, but I feel that I am privileged and my colleagues are privileged to be able to do more in our teaching, in our research, and as needed in advocacy as well. It's not the path of the incentives of the academics either. Their incentives are to stay narrow, to stay siloed, to publish very papers to specific audiences, not to write up eds or get in political battles. They have this taste for it.
0: Well, academics need to be better citizens. Business folks need to be better citizens. Our bankers need to be better citizens. Yeah. Anat, thank you so much for joining me. The book is uh, banker's new clothes. I think it's time for the broader book, which is everyone's new clothes and tell us about how this analysis could apply to pretty much any business for-profit, nonprofit.
1: Yeah, good variation. Banking, they say banking is special and I say banking is special what they get away with, but there's more of that. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. Hope to see you on campus sometime soon. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.